dear fellow redeemed. We consider especially our first reading from Isaiah chapter 55, uh, much of which was also the content of our choral anthem this morning. And as we begin, perhaps then it is a strange place to start, talking about what you and I know by nature, even that phrase, by nature, something that comes naturally, something that, that you and I know, that any person can know from some careful consideration, from some time in this world, from simply trying to go through life and parse things out what we know by nature. There's what we know by nature and what we know from nature. That's not the normal division we typically use, but it works. What we know by nature from our conscience. That God has standards, God has demands, I fall short. That God has justice and judgment for me. What we know from nature, we look around and we see that this place is larger and more intricate and more orderly than it has any right to be. And so what we know from nature, we know that there must be a God who exists. And not only is he powerful because he can make gigantic things like uh, Lake Superior or the Rocky Mountains, but he also can make minute things like atoms and electrons. So he is powerful. He is powerful. You see that in, in the storms, in the tides, and you name it. But he's also orderly. There is a certain sense of order to the world around us. Order in the animals and the plants that we see. Order to the seasons and the rhythm of life. There is a hint that God is good. As the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth on both believer and unbeliever alike, so that the rain produces, of its own accord, life from that earth. There's a hint that God is good. And you put those two together. You put those two together, what we know by nature, what we know from nature, and what you really have is the basis for any religious activity in this life. Trying to grasp at, who is this God? I know that he is powerful. I know that he is orderly. He, he gives some hint that he is good. But how do I reconcile that with what I feel? How do I reconcile that truth with my own estimation of my ethical goodness? That I have a sense of what is right and wrong. That any person has a sense of what is right and wrong. And that even our society, to a degree, reflects these moral laws that we have a sense of what is right and wrong, and at the same time, there's the objective, outside sense of right and wrong, as well as my own personal opinion, that I think I measure up. I hope I measure up. As well as the kind of the caboose and the whole train. What if you don't? What if I don't? And with only those two basic facts, what we know by nature, what we know from nature, the easiest way to solve this conundrum is to not give it any extra thought. The easiest way to solve this conundrum is to not think about it, to get so busy with supplying the needs of everyday life and busying oneself with the cares and the worries and the pleasures of this world 
so that I don't have time to think about that. And then the brain kicks into self-defense mode. All I have to do is just do the best with what I've got, and if there's any sort of judgment or justice at the end, then that's not my problem. But that's not a good place to be. Because ignoring something doesn't make it go away. It just means that we aren't paying attention to it. Ignoring something doesn't make, mean that it disappears. Just try that with your doctor. When he calls and he says, well, here's the situation. Here's based on the most recent test results, and here's what I recommend. And you should do something about it here in the next um, three to six months. Try it with your dentist, who takes the x-ray and says, well, you've got this problem here, and we should really address this before it gets worse. And you just say to yourself, well, I'm just going to put that out of my mind. I'm going to ignore the problem. And even though we don't do that with our bodies and our lives, we take our, our health care and our well-being seriously. At the same time, that truth and that same action is the way that people deal with this bare spiritual reality. That we know, looking at the world around us, that there is a God who is greater than us. We know, looking at the heart and the conscience within us, that not only, not only does this God have standards, but I don't measure up. And as much as I might want to, to say that I do and tell myself that it's all okay, there's still the lingering knowledge that there's more to life than this life. That's exactly what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That God has set eternity on the hearts of man, and yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning until the end. That you and I know by nature, that every person knows by nature, that there's more to life than this life. That this life extends beyond the mere 70 or 80 years if God gives us the strength. And the easiest way to deal with that is to try to forget. Because that's the nature of, of God's law. That we can't look at it, and we can't look at it with any sort of um, insight, and we can't bear its wrath. I mean, that comes up as we're kind of working through the large catechism during our Sunday morning Bible class. We hear what God has to say, we hear the way that, that Martin Luther explained it for the people, and we say, well, he, he can't actually mean that. Because if he did, I'd be going to hell for sure. Surely he can't mean that. And that's the, the default reaction. When we see God's law, if we get past the point of ignoring it and actually looking at it, we say, well, let's reduce this to something more manageable. Let's reduce the, the quantity of God's law the quantity of God's justice and punishment. Well, God has said, you know, in the human heart that there is eternity. Let's reduce the quantity. Maybe it's not that long. It is still incredibly painful and horrible and bad, but it's only for a short period of time, and then poof, that's it, you disappear. You can deal with God's law by reducing the quantity of God's law. Or, you could deal with God's law by reducing the quality. Well, okay, it lasts forever, but it's just this nameless, faceless existence. It's kind of this pointless life that goes on forever and ever, but it's not that bad. 
Surely, surely um, God's standard, even though he is righteous and he demands holiness, well, I'll just do the best that I can with what I've got, because that's all that I'm capable of, and it's not fair of God to demand anything extra of me. We reduce the quality of God's demand until it is small enough for us to fit in our hands, put in our pocket, and say, I've done it. That's what every person knows by nature. And at every point throughout history, every, every people, every culture, every religion has tried to deal with those two twin truths. What we know about God from nature around us, he is powerful, he is good. What we know about God by the nature inborn within us from the conscience, that he has standards and the dirty little secret is I fall short. And you look at every single other religion in the world. You look at every single person who calls himself or herself a, um, a moral atheist, which is religion in its own right. You look at every single person that tries to ignore and make themselves so busy with things today that they don't have time to think about tomorrow, much less forever. And you'll see the exact same solutions, one after another. Let's just reduce the time. Don't worry, Pastor. This life is all that there is. There is nothing after this life. Or they reduce the quality of God's judgment. Well, God doesn't actually mean that. All he says is, just follow these five simple rules, follow this eightfold path, do the best with what is in you, and then God will take care of the rest. And nobody got it right. Because here in Isaiah, here in Isaiah chapter 55, we hear, uh, my plans are not your plans, my, your ways are not my ways. As the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my plans are higher than your plans, uh, verses 8 and 9. And we hear that, and it's like, oh, I like that. I'll, I'll hold on to that one. And nobody got it right. You look at verses 8 and 9, and they are perhaps familiar perhaps familiar, but the way that we use them is so completely out of character for what God's trying to say here. So completely out of character, because what God is trying to say here is that he has revealed a message from heaven that in comparison to and in opposition to and right alongside with all of his demands that we see reflected in nature and conscience he has given a word, a message, a word from himself that he doesn't think and act the way that you or I do. That he doesn't think and act the way that humans do with their own sense of quality and, and quantity of demands. Because isn't that, isn't that how it works? That for people who can't bear God's law. We reduce the quantity of God's demand. And then we reduce the quality of God's demand. And we sit in judgment over God's demands. And then the next step is that we use God's demands as though we ourselves are the judge. You think of the, um, the words of Isaiah here that I've got the right to decide what is right and wrong, and I have decided that you don't measure up to my own personal standard. And what is it that causes 
um, arguments and disagreements and dissension among people, other than their own personal judgment of what is right and what is not. And God does something different. He gives us a word. He says, you know what? You human beings are so wrapped up in yourself, in yourselves, because you can't see something that he has to reveal. Because we can't see the exact word that he has to reveal from heaven. Because it's not something that we know by nature. It's not something that we can discern from looking within us, peering within our hearts. He says, my plans are not your plans, and your ways are not my ways. And what he's talking about here is that this God freely forgives. That this God freely forgives, and he has said that in his word, that he freely forgives without holding a grudge, without saying, as long as you pay me back. He freely forgives without saying, I will forgive you if. He freely forgives without saying, well, um, just try again now, and hopefully, you know, I'm the God of second chances, so now you have a second chance to live up to my law. That he is the God who freely forgives, and that is his word from heaven, and nobody got it right. Aside from, you know, the apostles and the prophets. Nobody got it right, because if religion, if the Christian faith is simply God's law repackaged, then it is, has no inherent value above anything else. Then no religion is better than any other religion. That if the message of the Christian church is, well, as long as you do a little bit of this and do a little bit of that, then God will forgive you. That's not forgiveness. That's a transaction. That's a payment. That if the message of the Christian church were simply, we know God is powerful, we know God is good, and we should all fall down in submission before him, um, but that's not forgiveness. If the message of the Christian church is merely that God is sovereign and powerful, and he's great and we're not, that's still not the word of the gospel. If the message is simply, try again, and love God and love people, all it's doing is packaging God's law in fancy paper and saying, here's something different. But it doesn't work. And there's only one guy who got it right since the writing of Scripture. That was somebody who actually stared into the mirror of God's law long enough to say, when am I going to measure up? When will enough be enough? Somebody who stared into the mirror of God's law and didn't say, well, if that's true, that means I'm going to hell. I know that I'm not going to hell, so therefore that cannot be true. No, he stared into God's law and he spent nights sleepless on the floor in anguish and saying, this must be true because I know it here also. He said, what is the remedy? And the church said, well, work your way through the, through the sacraments. He became a priest. He became a monk. He went to confession, which is not a bad thing at all. 
But he was told, you have to confess every single thing, and after six hours, from breakfast until the mid-afternoon snack, he sat there confessing. Six hours, I can barely tolerate driving the car for six hours, much less sitting and telling somebody the worst things that I've ever done, all of them enumerating. And finally, after six hours, he got out of the confessional booth, he walked about ten steps and said, but I forgot something. Because the message was that if you want God to consider you righteous, then you need to do all the things. If you want God to consider you righteous, then you must make use of all these um, ordinances and rites. And you have to do them perfectly, or else God will hold you accountable. You need to name all of your sins, and who can discern his errors, if that's what King David writes, good luck for you or I, neither of whom is an inspired author of scripture. Who can discern his errors? Who knows the motives of a man's heart? And the church said, but you have to. You have to discern the errors, you have to enumerate the motives, and all it was was staring at God's law in all of its brightness, in all of its pain, and say, if this is really true, then what is the point? If this is really true, that God's, that God's demand is for my entire life from the moment my life began, you know, nine months before birth, all the way through the moment of my last breath on earth, and I need to confess every single sin during that time if I want to make it to heaven. And he looked at the quality of God's law. That it wasn't just the outward action, but the inward thought. And he despaired. And realistically, that's the work of God. Even though we talk about the history, even though we um, you know, write papers about the history of this, the reality is just that somebody who took God's word seriously and said, but wait. What else does God have to say? And God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And it's not just, you know, hashtag this is a God thing. God just dropped this incredible blessing in my lap. What Isaiah is talking about here is that God's way is to punish his son in your place. That God's way is a, a full forgiveness. That isn't conditional, as if to say, if you do this, then I will forgive you. That's not forgiveness, that's a transaction. That God's way is a free forgiveness that says, all we have to offer is our sin. And God isn't like the creditor coming along behind to say, all right, now that I've got you locked in for all eternity, I'm just going to charge 2.99% for all eternity, and now you have to pay God back with all that you do. No, he says you are free. As this word that is outside of our hearts, as this word that can't be found written in nature, as this word that addresses that addresses God's law and all of its quantity and all of its quality and says there is a one who took your place. And in him you have been called, declared to be righteous. Not that he has, what we're talking about here, 
isn't that he inwardly makes you holy enough for God, but that he himself, who knows the full extent and the full depth of his demands, he himself has declared to say to you and to me, for the sake of this man on the cross, your sin is forgiven. No paybacks, no takebacks, no tradebacks. Your sin is forgiven. And there's only that one guy who got it right. That guy, Martin Luther. Augustine didn't get it right. Some of the more modern people surely didn't get it right. And you'll hear it at the same, the same place. That if it is to be gospel and grace, which is God's attitude of love towards sinners for the sake of Jesus, if it is to be gospel and grace, then it has to be full and free and complete. It has to be something outside of us. That the gospel is the spoken word that you hear. The gospel is encapsulated in the water that rolls off your baby's head. The gospel is right there, hidden underneath the bread and the wine for you, which is God's message. That he knows the height, breadth, and depth of our sin. He knows the quantity and quality of his law. He has carried them for you. And so the celebration today, yes, yes, it is a celebration that does mention and talk about God's work in history through this man, Martin Luther. But it's really about Martin Luther pointing back to the greater man, Jesus Christ. That's the image that uh, didn't quite print as well as it could have. It's from the, the, on the front of your bulletin. And this will wrap us up. It's, um, it's from an altarpiece called the Weimar Altarpiece. And what you see at the left, or at the right, is Martin Luther standing in the pulpit. And he's pointing. And you might think that he is simply pointing at the people this is what you did, this is what you didn't do, and this is where you have fallen short. This is how you measure up. But he's pointing at the guy in the middle, at Jesus Christ on the cross. And the people on the other side, looking where he is pointing. And the guy in the beard, the, the long beard in the back, the, uh, the artist painted himself into the picture to say, this is our hope. That as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, God's ways are not our ways, and thank God for that. That he doesn't operate on the basis of, um, of trade and transaction, because if that were the case, we would be lost. That he has chosen to operate to enter our history in the person of Jesus Christ, to say this forgiveness, his righteousness, is yours. Free of charge. Completely. Full. No trade backs, no interest, forever. Amen.